so high when it comes to this point that Paul pronounced a curse on anyone who teaches otherwise. The Greek word translated accursed is anathema, damned. The apostle understood that the issue of justification was no mere academic issue, but one that touches every person's life ultimately. It can be summed up in one question. How are we saved? It is a life and death matter, an eternal life matter. The New Testament makes it clear that each of us will be called into account before God, and that God is righteous while we are not. The doctrine of justification addresses the solution to that problem, declaring how we, as unjust people, can be reconciled to a just and holy God. So if there's anything in the essence of the Christian faith, of the good news of the gospel, it's this doctrine. Martin Luther, building on Paul's assessment, called the doctrine of justification the article on which the church stands or falls. Luther understood that theology is systematic and that a distortion of the gospel will influence and affect everything else that we believe in the Christian faith. John Calvin said something very similar. We must so discuss justification by faith as to bear in mind that this is the main hinge on which religion turns, so that we devote the greater attention and care to it. For unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of His judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. Do you think it's important to know how you can be saved? Does it matter to you what is the basis upon which your own salvation rests? I can't think of anything that matters more. We must all ask, with the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16, verse 30. Chapter 2. Luther's Discovery Martin Luther had a reputation among his fellow monks as being strange. His behavior in the confessional was notorious. He would go into daily confession and spend an hour, two hours, sometimes four hours confessing his sins, until his confessor would become frustrated and wonder if Luther was simply trying to shirk his duties. He would confess the smallest transgressions, prompting the brothers to say, If you're going to confess a sin, confess one that's significant. Don't keep us in here for hours reciting these peccadilloes. But Luther was sincere. He really was tormented. And he would get peace for a few moments when the priest gave him absolution. Then he would leave the confessional, go back to his cell, and be plunged into despair because he remembered a sin that he had forgotten to mention in the confessional. Because of this torment over his guilt, some have even suggested that he was mentally unbalanced. If we look beyond his confessional practices, we see that Luther's entire life was marked by one crisis after another. It seemed that these crises came about every five years. In 1505, Luther was studying law and had already distinguished himself as one of the leading thinkers in the field of jurisprudence in all of Europe. 
If we want to understand Luther's theological torment, we have to recognize that he brought an expert's legal mind to the law of God. When he examined the law of God, he was driven to the edge of despair because he realized that his life never measured up to the radical demands of purity and holiness that he found there. At one point he said, You ask me if I love God. Love God? Sometimes I hate Him. He saw God as an angry judge who applies the measuring stick of the absolute law of God to his performance. And Luther knew he came up short. On one occasion in 1505, when he was on his way home from university, a fierce storm suddenly arose and a lightning bolt struck next to him. He was thrown from his horse and almost killed. In panic, he cried out, Help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk.